from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Welcome to Folklife Today. I'm Steve Winnick, a Folklife Specialist at the American Folklife Center of the Library of Congress and creator of the Folklife Today blog. And I'm here with John Fenn, who is the head of research and programs for the center. Hello. This episode of Folklife Today is premiering during African American History Month. The American Folklife Center has hours and hours of material relating to African American history online, from songs by African American veterans of World War I to interviews with civil rights leaders in our Civil Rights History Project collection. But this February, we decided to focus on one collection with fascinating implications for the contemporary world. That's right. It's an oral history collection related to the Green Book, a travel guide that directed African Americans to businesses that would serve them during the era of Jim Crow and segregation. We have a special guest with us, Candace Taylor, who is an award-winning author, photographer, and cultural documentarian working on a multidisciplinary project based on the Green Book. Taylor is the author of the book Overground Railroad, The Green Book and the Roots of Black Travel in America, and she's also developing exhibits, multimedia presentations, and many other programs based on the Green Book. And we should also say that her work on the Green Book has received grants from Harvard University, National Geographic, the National Park Service, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Schoenberg Center for Research in Black Culture, the Graham Foundation, California Humanities, and the American Council of Learned Societies. Also, we're very proud to say part of her work was funded by an Archie Green Fellowship from the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. Candace Taylor is so impressive that we're in danger of spending the entire episode just bragging that she's actually here with us, but instead, let us welcome her to the podcast. Welcome, Candace Taylor. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. That was a lovely introduction. It was embarrassing to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we're so happy to have you here. So let's start at the beginning. What is the Green Book? The Green Book was a travel guide that was published for Black people during the Jim Crow era. It started publication in 1936 and remained in publication until 1967. And what can you tell us about Victor Hugo Green? Victor Hugo Green was the man who created the Green Book. Um, and it was really an ingenious idea that he had. Um, he was living in Harlem. He was a postal worker from Harlem. He literally was in the process of basically looking through his own neighborhood and seeing how many places black people were shut out of, even in Harlem, because Harlem has this reputation as being the black Mecca of, you know, culture and, and energy and anything you could do it was accessible to black folks. And that simply wasn't true. There was a, a riot in 1935 um, that was triggered largely by race um, in Harlem. And he had a friend who was a Jewish friend of his who used a kosher guide to, travel up north to the Borscht Belt. And it was just really handy because it would show him where he could get kosher food and where he would feel welcome. And Victor Green uh, thought this would be really useful, even just for my neighborhood. And he was driving his wife, Alma Duke Green, to Virginia, to Richmond, Virginia, regularly to see her family. And so that's how he got the idea. And again, in 1936 was when it was started, and it was just really a Harlem guide. And 
within a few years, it grew very quickly because there was such a need for it um, throughout the country. However, it's important to realize that the Green Book wasn't the first or the only Black travel guide. Um, There were nearly a dozen of them. And the first Black travel guide was in 1931 called Hackley and Harrison's. But the Green Book had the largest reach, the largest um, uh, impact. It was the most, um, it was an international guide. It traveled throughout, you could go throughout the world. There were 33 countries in Africa listed in the Green Book. So compared to all the other ones, this was the most uh, fabulous one. That's the one we, we tend to celebrate. Wow. So we should say that the disturbing part of the story, of course, is the racism that gave rise to the Green Book. So could you explain why the book was so necessary? What were the dangers and challenges that Black travelers encountered and that the Green Book could help you with? Right. The Green Book was, again, it, you know, because it started in Harlem, it was serving this specific need. But throughout the country, and mind you, Harlem, you know, we're in the north here. This is not a southern issue. Jim Crow and the Jim Crow South, yes, there were problems, but Jim Crow was pervasive throughout the country. And maybe they didn't have signs colored in white. Um, And in some cases, some people would argue that that was actually better in the Jim Crow South to have the signs because then you knew where you were welcome. Throughout the country, there were also these things called sundown towns. And they were largely a northern, midwestern, and western phenomena. And these were all white towns. They were all white on purpose. For instance, the state of Illinois had hundreds of sundown towns. We think between four and 600 sundown towns. Um, and Mississippi only had a handful. So that gives you, you know, a snapshot of really what the country was like. And for so many Black people who were leaving the South, many of which who were fleeing racial terror because the second wave of the Great Migration was going on when the Green Book was at its height. So you had millions of people leaving the South, Black folks, who were trying to relocate to these northern cities and in Los Angeles and in the um, Pacific Northwest. But it was very challenging because they, they learned very quickly that Jim Crow had no borders. You know, when you left the Mason-Dixon line, it was still dangerous. Um, sundown towns literally had signs, many of which it would say inward, don't let the sun set on you here. Or they'd ring a bell at 6 p.m. alerting the locals that uh, there were local domestics and black people who worked in the town. But uh, that bell would ring and that would mean it's time for you to leave. You couldn't sleep overnight in that town. So again, of course, unless you were local, you didn't know what that bell meant. Look at Route 66 that traveled from Chicago to Los Angeles, passed through eight states, and 44 out of the 89 counties on Route 66 were sundown towns. So it was very dangerous. And there was no black Twitter. There was not even a list of sundown towns. It's not like you'd head out knowing, oh, I have to avoid this. You just were driving along and and then there you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. So the gift of the Green Book was that it really did at least show the communities where Black culture was happening, where there were Black-owned businesses, where you knew you could get services. Um, And that was, it was literally a lifesaver. There's a story you sometimes tell that your stepfather told you about his family being pulled over at one point, um, which I think kind of vividly shows what this was like. Yes. Um, 
You know, I started doing this research in 2013, um, and it took me about, I guess that's you now about eight years uh, before the book came out. And even though I'd known my stepfather the majority of my life, um, I didn't realize that uh, there was so much about his life growing up in the Jim Crow South that he didn't share with me. Because um, he talked all the time and he told all kinds of stories, but I didn't hear these kinds of stories until I started doing this work because I think he started to trust me um, and he knew that I, I guess I could understand. And he was about seven years old and his father worked for the railroad. They had a, you know, he had a good job and they had a new car and um, with all the modern features and they were driving north. Uh, Ron, my stepfather was from Tennessee, from Memphis, and they were driving north and uh, across the Tennessee border and the sheriff pulled them over. And the first thing he said to him, you know, when uh, Ron's father was in the front seat, when the sheriff pulled them over and the sheriff was walking towards a car, he turned to Ron and he said, don't say a word. And Ron didn't know, he's seven, he didn't know what was going on. He didn't understand that there could be trouble. And so the sheriff got to the window and said, you know, whose car is this and where are you going and who are these people with you? And Ron's father said, you know, this is my employer's car. And he looked at his wife and pretended he didn't know her and said, uh, she's the maid and that's her son and I'm driving them home. And Ron just sat in the back seat, just tight lipped. He didn't understand what was going on. The sheriff said, where's your hat? And his father said, oh, it's hanging right in the back, officer. And Ron looked over, and there had always been this hat, this black hat hanging back there. He never knew what it was for. He never knew what it was. Um, and it was a chauffeur's hat. And, um, and he said after that day, he saw them in nearly every black man's car that he rode in. And it just, you know, and I'm standing there, and him, he, he's telling me this story in the kitchen, and I'm trying not to cry, you know, because... You know, he told me other stories about his cousin being chased out of town by the Ku Klux Klan and almost getting lynched and, and all of these things. And I think it was heartbreaking because I've been reading all of these horrible things and we know the history. But it was heartbreaking that this man who I'd known since I was, you know, 12 and had been in my family and talks all the time had never told me these things. And so I started realizing the scars of, you know, of Jim Crow and, and growing up black in, in this country. In this context, Ken Dacey, the Green Book was a guide to safety and shelter, um, and and now it serves as a guide to, as you articulated, kind of where African-American culture happened, where um, people were able to gather. Can you explain to us your process for, for documenting these Green Book sites now? Oh, it's been a process. I mean, really, um, and that's why it's taken me so many years, and I'm still documenting them even though I had the book out and the exhibition and everything. I mean, when I first started this project, Wikipedia, which, you know, I'm not at all saying ever, anyone should ever trust Wikipedia as a source, um, but uh, they said there were 1,500 green book sites on Wikipedia. And this was before I got the fellowship at the Schomburg. And the Schomburg has the largest collection of green books in the country, in the world. And if you Google NYPL Green Book, you can view them all, and they've digitized them all now, which is amazing. But when I started this project, they weren't digitized, and we didn't know. There were only two editions that we really had access to. So when Wikipedia said there were 1,500 sites, I thought, wow, that's 
that seemed like a lot at the time. But after getting to the Schomburg and doing that research, you know, I've cataloged over 10,000 Green Book sites now. And I've scouted, like physically gone out and scouted about over 5,000. And I'm finishing up COVID willing this summer. I'm finishing the field research to develop the mobile app. But what I found very quickly was that the, these Green Book sites were clustered. About 80% of them are in traditional Black neighborhoods. So I got to a point where I could scout. I mean, I worked 16-hour days, and I was on the road for five, six months at a time. Um, I took several trips. I probably took seven trips doing the field research for this project. But when I was out there, you know, I would see that there would be these clusters of, I'd scout about 30 a day. That was my target to really get a snapshot of really what's left. And what I found is about three to 5% of them are still operating and about 80% are just gone. I mean, they're just erased from the landscape. There's no building. There's no evidence that it ever existed. Urban renewal was a real thing. It really did wipe out incredible amounts of our black culture. You know, I'd be looking at my notes and, oh, there should be 20 green book sites here. And they've just been replaced by a freeway. So, yeah, so, and I'm so glad because when I got the fellowship at Harvard to do the scholarly research, I I went to the Schomburg and then went to Harvard. And then after that, I could have written a book. I mean, I had enough there to do it. And I had already sold the book um, proposal to Abrams. So I was just supposed to go back and basically write the book. But once I had done several scouting trips at that point, I realized what was happening in these communities today was so significant and so telling about a lot of the racial, racialized policies, government policies that have been enacted over the last 50 years that have really shaped these communities and really told a different story that continues beyond the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Green Book ceased publication in 1967. So a lot happened after that, that that story really needed to continue And we needed to contextualize it, that historic narrative to today. And so that's when I continued the field research and really wrote a different book. And I, you know, I told Abrams, I said, you know, I will write the book that I proposed, but I think there's a deeper and bigger story here. So I asked to rewrite the proposal and, and said, you know, if you agree, then this is the book we'll do. And if not, I'll write the one that I sold you. And and after I rewrote the proposal, they agreed. But then I only had eight months to write the book. So it was it was stressful. <laughs> but I'm so thankful that, you know, we get to um, that we get to see this living history because these sites and these people that are still a part of it are really important. Yeah. And we now have, of course, many of your photographs and wonderful interviews online at the Library of Congress website. So that is a blessing to us. At our Women Documenting the World Symposium, you talked a little about the dangers that you yourself encountered on this journey to document Green Book sites as an African-American woman. Could you share a little bit of that story? Being a woman and um, being a Black woman, yes, that, that is interesting because I've been doing this work for over 20 years now, and I've documented everything from older diner waitresses to beauty shop operators and different types of um, ethnic communities all over the country. I've documented female bullfighters. um, And it wasn't until I did this project that it became very clear to me that, you know, being a black woman researching this black history, 
I was stunned again that if I went to a place like South Side of Chicago, and I'd been to Chicago many, probably a dozen times, one of my favorite cities, but I'd never been to these pockets of Chicago. And one particular neighborhood, over like 53 people had been shot that weekend. I was there. And it was it was incredibly dangerous and, and terrifying. Um, I travel alone. It's the way that I do it. Um, because again, who's going to really work 16 hour days and food is not really important to me. I mean, there's things that being on the road, I'm just kind of driven literally and figuratively to just get it done. So, but there were definitely times in Miami, Baltimore, places that, you know, the level of poverty um, and desperation were so extreme that, you know, I would not get out of my car with my camera that's, you know, very expensive um, and become a target. I mean, I ended up traveling with a stun gun under my seat, um, a knife and mace, and they were all within arm's distance. I did get chased and harassed and, you know, almost assaulted, um, but I was okay, you know, in the end. Um, and there were times when I just had to use my instincts and I'd have to leave. And I had to be really smart about not second guessing myself. And, you know, for instance, when I was in Miami and at the Hampton house, as I'm photographing the Hampton house, there's a young girl who's approaching me, who's coming into my frame. And I saw her, I saw her coming um, from down the street and it looked odd. I thought, you know, is she okay? And then I realized she didn't have any clothes on from the waist down. She was completely naked from the waist down. And she looked very young. She looked like she could be no older than 19 years old. And she was just twirling her hair and she was a prostitute and she was, you know, on drugs. And it was just very sad, you know, and I, and I obviously didn't film her or, you know, I put my camera down when she came into the frame. But, but there were scenes like that and there were moments where, you know, and I was scouting that neighborhood near the Hampton house where I just, cause you have to go around and around the same block sometimes, you know, a lot of times the addresses are hard to see. It becomes very clear, very quickly that you are an outsider, you know? And so it's, you have to casually drive around, but once they see your car a few times, you know, if people are sitting outside, they start to look at you you know, and there's some, and sometimes that's fine. And I've had that happen in Denver and people came up to me and said, Oh, what are you doing? And I described the project and they were very nice. Uh, but then there were times when my instincts were like, ah, oh, this is not the place I'm, you know, it's not good for me to be an outsider here and I'd have to leave. And so I had to cut some of the scouting in certain cities short where it's like, it's just not, you know, it's not safe. So yeah. So being a woman, you know, definitely shifted some of the access, you know, I'm not going to go and knock on somebody's door, especially if it was a tourist home. And, uh, you know, there, there are different strategies that I may use for the other projects that I couldn't use for this one. You get an, an intense sense of history from your reflections, right? The sort of the, the what you're experiencing doing this is on a continuum going back to the time when the Green Book was active. Um, so that history is traumatic and, and you know, and racially charged. There's also history of families in some of these interviews, right? And one one that I find really fascinating was your talk with Leah Chase of Dookie Chase's restaurant in New Orleans. Um, the restaurant started in 1941 and is still operating. What was it like 
documenting the Chase family's life's work in this broader context? It was one of the highlights of my life, honestly. I mean, I, I had met Leah Chase a couple of years before my interview that, that the Library of Congress has now. Um, and so Stella um, was the contact there who, who basically coordinated this interview for me. And I brought a dear friend of mine, um, Sophie Pegram, who's a filmmaker, to actually do video footage of, of Leah. And I brought my camera and took photographs. But for this particular interview, I mean, she's she was 96 when I interviewed her and she passed just a few months within four months, I believe, after our interview. And she was still vibrant and on it. And her brain was just so clear and her stories and her energy around, you know, she just was so excited that there were two women there to interview her. And, you know, this idea, she's like, we really have made some progress. And she was just so, you know, she didn't want that to pass that like, it was unusual because she's been interviewed by everybody. You know, she's a legend in her own right. There was like a waiting line to receive, I mean, a receiving line for her. That's always people from all over the country have been coming to just wait to talk to her. And she's a celebrity chef, but she's so, her story is so, um, tied to the history of the South. And in the interview, you'll, you know, you'll read and see that, you know, she, she had to move to New Orleans because she couldn't go to school in the town that she came from. And, you know, it was a small town outside of um, a rural area of Louisiana. And it was, and I think, you know, my mother had just passed a few months before I met with her too. Um, who had dementia. And so there was something, and my mother was in her seventies. And so I think I was really emotional during this interview too, because I was seeing Leah in her nineties being as fab fabulous as she was. And you know, of course, I think I was reminiscing like, God, I wish my mother had had another 20 years like this. And just the impact of me being there, doing this for the library of Congress, it just felt very important um, and the fact that I was, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall in the moment. And I was actually there conducting the interview. It was very, it was very special to me. And to know that, you know, we're going to archive this history and her story. Um, and she just told great stories about, you know, Michael Jackson and, and Barack Obama and how she slapped his hand because he tried to put hot sauce on her gumbo. She was just, you know, she would treat you the same, whether you were, Barack Obama or, you know, just a fan coming to try some of her food. But she did a lot of first. And that restaurant is just, it's one of the treasures of, of our country. And, you know, anybody who hasn't been, you know, it's kind of a bucket list thing. Everybody should go and experience it because there's nothing like it. Um, and there never will be because of the history of, of her and Dookie, her, her, her husband who had passed. And the legacy that the family is still, you know, they're still active and a part of the community and engaged in this history. So it was, it was a huge honor. Well, let's listen to that clip when she talks about slapping Barack Obama's hand. Okay, I heard that, did you really slap um, Barack Obama. Obama's hand? <laughs> Poor dog. He came and he said, 
I'm going to have some chicken. And he always running, always in a rush. So he sat down. I said, I'm going to serve you gumbo, and you can take your chicken on a plane. So here I come with the bowl of gumbo. Here he is with the Tabasco sauce. I said, you don't put hot stuff in my gumbo. <laughs> when I realized, you know, I'm a hidden kind of person. I was hit in a minute. <laughs> That's why I have to be very careful today. You can't do that with people today. <laughs> you can't hit them today. But those old girls who were here used to say, Miss Chase, don't hit me, please. Don't hit me. I, think, I think Barack Obama probably feels special <laughs> that you hit. You slapped his hand away. Slap you probably remember me. that the rest of his life. So the whole neighborhood found out that, and across the street, you know, was the housing units. And they said, that's right, Miss Dickey. You told him, right, don't mess up your gumbo. <laughs> but he was such a smart man, such a kind man, and just so humble and so, he was an unbelievable man. Again, that was uh, Leah Chase talking about when she had to slap Barack Obama's hand. Another amazing moment was when Leah Chase talks about sending Michael Jackson some sweet potato pies. Let's hear that clip as well. Talk about um, Michael Jackson. He liked your peach cobbler. Was he, that? he liked the sweet potato pie. The sweet potato pie, okay. Michael, I fed him when he was a little boy. Last time I saw Michael, he was about 14 years old, and I didn't see him anymore. I saw the brothers Germaine and Tito and all those people. But Michael, I never saw him anymore. But when Michael died, that really hit me hard because the bodyguard that he had when he came to New Orleans would go to visit him in California and I would send Michael sweet potato pies. So I never sent Michael a sweet potato pie in a long time. And I got upset. I couldn't figure out, where was your mother, Michael? When you needed somebody, of course you were different than your brothers, but you were there. Where were they? How we let you down like that? Just thought about you and the money. But I always thought, and I used to tell my daughter, oh, you see if I'd have sent Michael his sweet potato pie. And she said, Mother, you couldn't do that. I, you couldn't do anything about the way Michael lived. So again, that was Leah Chase of Dookie Chase's restaurant in New Orleans. And we are talking with Candace Taylor about the interviews she did for the Green Book Project. Now, I've been dying to see the film One Night in Miami, and I'm intrigued by the Hampton House, where the film largely takes place. And I know you visited and documented that historic hotel, and you interviewed two different people about it. And you mentioned that the neighborhood in which the hotel was located was still in pretty rough shape when you um, went and visited it. So tell us a little of that story. Yes, when I went to visit the Hampton House, it was, again, it was so exciting um, because I did have these two interviews scheduled um, that were pretty hard to get, honestly. I had been it was kind of a last minute thing. And it was, I think at Christmas day, I spent, yeah, I spent Christmas 
day in Orlando that year because I had this interview on the 26th and I had to drive all the way down to Miami. And I was so excited to get the um, the interviews because the Markowitz family, um, it was a Jewish family who ran the Hampton House, but it was Enid Pinckney, the woman who actually is the reason why it was restored. And she was, in, she was a black woman and she was in her 70s, I believe, when she realized that the Hampton House was, you know, became her mission to save it because it had been sitting in shambles since the 60s, the place where Martin Luther King would swim with friends and family literally was just overgrown and there was a tree growing out of the swimming pool. And it was um, basically a place for, you know, people who were squatters and, um, and addicts. And, you know, it just had been abandoned and neglected for, for decades. So Enid remembered as a child or as a young person, you know, having fun at the Hampton house and remembered from, you know, her, in her twenties going there and loving it. And it just broke her heart. So she became, she spearheaded this campaign to bring it back to life. And although she didn't have any experience as a preservationist, she became one. And, you know, again, she started this like in her seventies. So it just, and now it's undergone like a $10 million renovation and it is brought to its pristine level of what it once was. It's a, it's a mid-century beautiful building. And all of those details have been brought back to life, almost identical to what it was. So it's been a, a huge labor of love. And uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's exciting that now it's becoming part of popular culture. And there's this recognition because so many historical things that happened there that, you know, Cassius Clay came in um, and was proselytized by Malcolm X and he left as Muhammad Ali. I mean, that's a story <laughs> that, you know, that has been told about the Hampton House and the idea that we almost lost it, that it was just really, I mean, it's just one woman, Enid, uh, is a reason why we, why we still have it. And there's other Green Book sites like that, too, that, you know, these monumental historical things happened in our culture and that there's no recognition, no acknowledgement, and no support to preserve it. Yeah, that's amazing. So let's hear Dr. Enid Pinckney talk about why the Hampton House was so important. The Hampton House was like a, a respite for people who could feel comfortable in an elegant place. I think that Hampton House is special because of what happened here because Dr. Martin Luther King used to stay here. Uh, and we have a picture of him in the swimming pool in his trunks, re relaxed here at the Hampton House. This, is, this was one of his favorite spots. And uh, Muhammad Ali stayed here, Malcolm X stayed here, in, in fact, Malcolm X proselytized him here at the Hampton House. And this that was when he changed his name after the fight with Sonny. He had his victory party here when he beat Sonny Liston in that cafe downstairs. And um, the Corps had its regular meetings here at the Hampton House. Dr. Martin Luther King first said his I Have a Dream speech 
at the Hampton House. Eddie Moore, who has recently passed, and he said that he was sitting right next to Dr. King when he gave the speech, and he said he, it was just so magnificent. That was Enid Pinckney, who was the CEO of the historic Hampton House Community Trust, casually mentioning Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and Cassius Clay all staying at the hotel, and King practicing the I Have a Dream speech there. What did you think when you first heard these stories, Candace? Well, it almost brought tears to my eyes because, again, I just thought the heaviness of this moment, these are, you know, titans of of civil rights and African-American culture and the fact that we are so ignorant, I think, of our of our living history. And, and there is something palpable about visiting these places and being in that space and walking around that pool. To me, it was, you know, I would get chills because you could see it. You could see there's obviously we have photographs to show what was happening there, but you can feel it. And there's this visceral feeling. And I think that's, to me, what is so what is missing from even if the history books get it right, which that's another issue. A lot of them don't. And the history that we grow up with in this country is not accurate a lot of times, especially when it comes to Black history. But even reading it in a book or understanding it through, you know, through knowledge that either somebody's sharing stories with you, but being in that space and standing in these places and talking to people who were there and who remember it, being in front of them, I mean, that just to me, it made all those black and white images come to color. And so that was a, a gift, you know, that I didn't, I wasn't really expecting it to be that powerful um, in terms of the resonance of this history coming to life. Now, you also talked to Jerry Markowitz, who was the son of the original owners of the Hampton House, and they were Jewish. And I found it interesting that he thought that his parents might have understood that other hotels not letting black people stay was wrong because Jews were sometimes subject to the same treatment. Let's hear that clip. You know, they were longtime residents of South Florida, and they were part of the Jewish community, which suffered from a lot of the same issues that black folks had. In fact, um, my partner, my former law partner, who just retired as a judge, and he found a letter his cousin sent him from Mobile, Alabama, from like 1942, where the owner of a hotel wrote to uh, one of his former customers saying, you know, we had previously allocated eight hotel rooms to, to Jewish people, and we had to make a decision whether we were going to cater to Jewish people or Gentile people, and we made the decision we were going to cater to, you know, Gentile people, so thank you for your business, but you're not <laughs> welcome here anymore. There were a series of very, very polite letters going back and forth that culminated in the owner of this hotel saying, you know, we really did the wrong thing. You know, you can stay here again. But um, I, I have to think that partly because of that, you know, the Jewish community in South Florida didn't view black people in the same way that maybe other people did, you know. So how did you react to hearing that story, Candace? Well, you know, what was interesting is even though I've scouted and cataloged all of these green book sites and the Jewish um, 
stories do continue to come up. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, when that's how Victor Green, one of the reasons why he got the idea to do the Green Book was because of his Jewish friend using a kosher guide. To me, you know, when I met Jerry, you know, he was still one step removed, honestly. I mean, it was really Enid that had this kind of visceral response because she was there and she was active and actually making sure that this still existed. But, you know, Jerry's stories were interesting through the eyes of his parents because they were of that time. And he was a kid. He was there as a, a busboy. I may stand corrected. Maybe a busboy. Yeah, he mentioned being a busboy and, and filling Malcolm X's coffee at one point. Right. And so for him to have this experience as, you know, he was young and realized that, well, yeah, the reason why the Hampton House was so critical and was so popular because all the black musicians, you know, were playing, you know, in, in Miami beach, but they couldn't stay there. And so they would go inland to the community where the Hampton house was, which was an all black community so that they could, that's where they played. That's where they played the B sides or that's where they relaxed. And that's where this culture really kind of came to life. And so for black and white people, and the family, like the Mankiewicz family. I mean, that was where, you know, the the real culture happened. And so the fact that they facilitated that and supported that and celebrated that was really special. And it's hard to know out of the 10,000 sites that I've been documenting, you know, which ones were, how many were black owned and how many were Jewish owned and or, you know, other ethnicities or, or just simply white owned. Because there were a lot of green book sites in the 60s and the later editions, Macy's and Disneyland and bigger brand names, the Waldorf Astoria, the Algonquin. There were these really fancy upscale, wide-owned places that were in the green book. But it's places like the Hampton House where you know that that family, you know, they got it early and they knew integration was coming and they knew that there was they were creating a, a need um, and a service that was invaluable to not just black folks, but especially in places like Southern Florida, where integration was not, was still frowned upon. It took a lot of courage to do that. So it was, it was great to get those two perspectives. Now we've listened to a few clips and shared them uh, that Steve and I chose, but we want to give you an opportunity to talk about an interview that stands out to you. Oh gosh. Um, I loved speaking with uh, Nelson Malden. He was the Dr. King's barber, and he worked on the first floor of the Ben Moore Hotel in Montgomery, Alabama. And again, this is where King strategized the Montgomery bus boycott. And he tells a story about, you know, that they are waiting at, because it was right across the street where the bus stop was. And all the guys in the barbershop were looking that first day when the bus strike was supposed to happen. And they knew that this one man would always get on the bus at, I don't know what time, really early in the morning. And they said, you know, when they saw that he didn't get on the bus that day, they knew that it was real, that it was really going to happen because everybody was saying, oh, I'm not going to get on the bus. But, you know, when it comes time to make that sacrifice, a lot of humans, you know, we just can't do it. And but they knew that that was the day that the Montgomery bus boycott started and that it was going to actually mean something. And then that's history in the making. Um, so stories like that were incredible. I also wanted to mention Herbert Suleiman. Uh, he was 
an incredible, he's almost like a version of Enid Pinkley. He started rehabbing and, and getting a campaign to restore Charlie's Place, which was in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And that was a fascinating story that he tells. And I interviewed two people, Dino Thompson and Herbert Suleiman, about that. And they it was just, again, an incredible opportunity to learn about the history and the beach culture and music that was happening on the coast there, how it was very specific and different. And sadly, we lost Herbert. He passed, I believe, within the last year. And he became a friend to me. And we would keep in touch while I was on the road. And and so, you know, I really wanted to celebrate him and what's happening with the with Charlie's is uh Again, they're underway with a renovation. We don't, it's not completed yet, but they've definitely made a lot of strides in that. And that's thanks to him. Well, we have time for one more clip. So let's listen to a clip from the Nelson Malden interview that Ken Daisy mentioned. But everyone, listeners know that all these interviews are available at loc.gov. So go ahead. I interrupted mm-hmm. you. What were well, you anyway, saying? then that was one of the cousins, then Ben Ruskin, the one who organized the march in Washington with A. Philip Randolph. He lived in the hotel. And then, of course, Benjamin Mays, when he came through Montgomery at the time to preach, and you had Vernon John, uh, which was the first pastor, one of the pastors next before Reverend came. And uh, we had B.B. Kane, who stayed in the hotel, Ruth Brown, uh, in and everybody. And Joe Lewis came to town one time. He was passed through Montgomery, and he stayed in the Benjamin Hotel. Did you do his hair? No, we didn't do Joe Lewis' hair. Okay. I did Benjamin Mays, the president of Mo House. You know, I cleaned his neck up, you know. Well, they spent a lot of time, you know, just to kill the time. They would come to, everything was in that little area. At the restaurant, right on the corner, and the restaurant was in the same building with the, the barber shop. Then the hotel was on the second floor. Then the nightclub was on the top floor. Mm-hmm. And so what about, you know, because Core was there, right, and SNCC and into the 60s, um, and King. Did you ever see Dr. King? Well, he was one of my customers. I started cutting his hair in 1954 when he first came to Montgomery. I was also a student in Alabama State College at that time. And so I had a 10 o'clock class that morning. And I saw this young man drive up in his blue Pontiac. He got out and I looked at his head like any barber would do. And I saw a heck I could knock him out in 15 minutes. Because it took take me about five minutes to walk to the campus. So he came in the barber shop. And I asked, what was the name? He said, Martin Luther King. I said, where are you from? Atlanta, Georgia. I said, what are you doing in town? He said, I'm here to preach my crowd sermon at Dex. I said, oh, good to meet you. So after I finished cutting and said, I gave him the mirror to say like his haircut. He told me pretty good. So you tell a barber pretty good, that was an insult. But he came back two weeks later. I was busy and other barber was vacant, but he waited on me. So I remember that sarcastic statement to me. And I said, that must have been a pretty good haircut. He said, you're all right. Once again, that was Nelson Malden of the Malden Brothers Barbershop, who was Dr. Martin Luther King's barber. And we are talking with Candace Taylor about her Green Book project. I guess the big question is always, what can we learn from the Green Book? And maybe we could break that down now in African American History Month to what can black folks learn from it and maybe what should white folks learn from it? Well, the Green Book was definitely a lesson in simplicity and just pure agency. I mean, I think that, you know, in some ways, when I think of Victor Green, who created the Green Book, he reminds me very much of 
Steve Jobs, who put a, you know, I'm sure when he put a camera into a phone, he didn't realize it was going to become a civil rights tool. And I think in a similar way, Victor Green was solving an immediate problem. He just thought, well, I want to be able to go down 125th Street and figure out where I can go in and where I don't have to sit in the balcony seats. And I just don't want, you know, the microaggressions of that are just tedious. And he just, he was trying to solve his own his own problems. And yet what it grew into was this huge source of black entrepreneurship and ingenuity. I mean, all of the businesses that were part of it was a whole network of progress within not just in each city, but the fact that you could be a black, I mean, a lot of, there's a whole chapter in my book about women in the green book um, and all of these women who had, you know, independent businesses and that were nightclub owners. And, you know, it was through these, the green book, because then they had all of the tourists that would come and support their businesses. And I think today, you know, people say, oh, we need a new green book today. And, you know, I guess people are using the brand of the green book in a lot of ways, which I don't think are really as, um, I, I don't, I think they're kind of missing the point. It's not that we, because the laws did change in 1964. I mean, we legally as black people can go in nearly every business. I mean, whether, you know, we still may get harassed at Starbucks, right? And there's still a lot of, of racism and microaggressions that happen today, just as they did before. So in that way, things have not changed too much. But the idea of, you know, how do we shape these Black-owned businesses and support them in a way that is so critical to changing the dynamic of banking? I mean, I think it needs to be beyond just you know, go, of course, go to, if you have an option to go to a black owned business, support that black owned business. And there's a lot of great apps and things that are coming up and inspired by the green book to do that, which I think is great. But how do we really, you know, after Black Lives Matter and all the George Floyd protests and all these corporations that came up and said, oh, we're on your side. It's like, well, then really show us because the capital, the numbers in terms of equality in the larger echelons of banking, of access of, you know, especially around business are still not there yet. So I think the pressure to use the green book to really show, okay, if you believe in this and you really want change and you want equality, then we still have a lot of work to do. And so I hope to continue to use it in that way. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's an inspiring thing. And to, to think that, you know, it's really just by accident that we kind of stumbled onto it as historians. And about 2007, I believe it was Calvin Ramsey who really started, you know, he learned about the green book um, and it was his, he's kind of the godfather of this research. He calls me his green book spouse. Um, <laughs> we were the only two um, for a while that were really um, getting articles published and kind of sharing information about this history that black folks, you know, we, Black and white. A lot of people didn't know about it. So it's mm -hmm. exciting that we get to rediscover it now and that it's at the Library of Congress. Yeah, I think your point about kind of knowing the history is not just to know it, but to activate it now. Um, and so as we mentioned at the top of the podcast, your book is out, Overground Railroad, The Green Book and the Roots of Black Travel in America. And we know you've been working on all sorts of other projects related to this research. Uh, can you give us a quick rundown so our listeners know what to look for and listen for from you? Oh, sure. Um, well, currently, I, I'm the content specialist and curator for an exhibition with the Smithsonian 
Um, it's the Smithsonian Institution Traveling Exhibition Service. So they we've developed an exhibition that's about over 3,000 square feet, and it will travel the U.S. for three years through 2024. And it's currently at the National Civil Rights Museum. And then it will go to the Mosaic Templars Museum in Arkansas, in Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, this summer. So if you go to the website for uh, Smithsonian, the exhibition's called Negro Motorist Screen Book. So you can follow the, the itinerary and the tour for that. I'm developing a mobile app that I hope to release next year, early next year, uh, along with I'm doing a children's book for ages 9 to 12. Um, that's a children's version of Overground Railroad. So that we just completed the edits for that, and that will be published next January. I'm developing a board game based on Overground Railroad. And yeah, there's and there's a couple other projects too in the works. So again, this material is so rich and I think there's so many different ways to engage it and understand it. And again, like you said, it's that living with it, that the book is doing one thing, but I, oh, and I also just finished a project with National Geographic. I did a digital interactive map, a story map that they may be releasing soon, but it'll be out there within the next couple of months. But that has just been completed too. And that traces Black social mobility over the last hundred years through the lens of the Green Book. So we're looking at lynching sites and I'm looking at sundown towns and obviously Green Book sites, but also it takes us today into mass incarceration. So yeah, so there's a lot, lot going on. Yeah, all of that sounds amazing. And I love the way there's contemporary technology like mobile apps, but also kind of old school stuff like board games and children's books and all of the creative things that you're doing with this material that you've researched is just a pleasure to hear about. And it really has been a pleasure talking with you. Once again, this has been Candace Taylor here on the Folklife Today podcast. And we should mention that the Green Book isn't her only project or even her only project to be awarded an Archie Green Fellowship by the American Folklife Center. So for more of Candace Taylor's interviews in our Occupational Folklife Project collection, just search for her name, and it's spelled C-A-N-D-A-C-Y at loc.gov. And for updates on her other projects, visit tailormadeculture.com with Taylor spelled with a Y. Candace, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Yes, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, I had fun. It was a good interview. Thank you. And we should also thank our engineer, John Gold, and our colleague, Nancy Gross, who hosts our sister podcast, America Works. Nancy has worked closely with Candace on her projects for the American Folklife Center, and she helped organize this interview. We should also thank our colleagues throughout the Library of Congress who help us deploy this podcast once we finally finished it. And finally, thanks to you, the listener. We'll see you next time on Folklife Today. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.